The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We have, over the past couple of weeks, spent a fair amount of time discussing elements related to creationism, evolution, the debate between those. And in previous programs, we have also veered into questions of cryptoarchaeology and cryptoscience. And those elements and those aspects of the type of work that we do uh, tend to overlap when we get into more complicated questions of early evolution, hominid evolution, the emergence of Homo sapiens, and generally how scientists perceive that we uh, evolved and populated the planet. And one of the aspects that's most interesting to that is uh, the research of my present guest for today is Dr. Todd Dizitel. And he's looked at sort of the overlap between evolution and some of the myths going around on uh, the evolution of hominids and how that's related to more fantastic stories that are widely circulated in the public media, Um, in particular, in his case, the story of Bigfoot. So we are going to be talking about these issues in this particular talk, and let me introduce my guest, Dr. Disatel is a professor of anthropology at New York University, where he uh, studies and lectures on primate and human evolution. He is a molecular primatologist, and he'll describe what that is, but essentially he uses DNA to study evolution of Homo sapiens and other primates. He has his PhD from Harvard University and has received numerous grants from the National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health and several other foundations. He teaches and writes about human variation, race, health, and disease. And as I said before, he has gotten into the uh, study of cryptozoological primates, such as the widely rumored Bigfoot. 
He has, in this context, appeared on a variety of different venues, uh, which are of the popular nature, specifically Comedy Central's The Daily Show, uh, National Geographic Channel's Naked Science and Is It Real, and the History Channel's uh, Monster Quest. Uh, Todd, thank you for being on the program. It's a great pleasure. So let's get started with your background and how you got into physical anthropology and what led you into the studies of evolution, DNA, and the general dispersal of early peoples. Well, it's like much of science. It's sort of a, uh, a winding accidental road, much like evolution is itself. Um, I went off to Cornell University to basically be a math and computer science major. I took a introduction to biological anthropology class just to meet a requirement and fell completely in love with the subject and said, I can apply mathematical modeling and computer programming to this question. And so I did that for my senior honors thesis, and then I went off to Harvard University to study basically fossil humans and our near-ape fossil ape relatives, and spent the first three years of graduate school actually studying anatomy at the med school and taking other anatomy courses and actually doing two field seasons in Pakistan, um, digging in, you know, 10 to 20 million year old um, uh, soils looking for fossil apes, including Gigantopithecus, which will come up shortly. Um, but by accident, uh, my advisor met another person in the biology department who was also trying to reconstruct evolution, but he did it with DNA, and I just literally ended up in his laboratory um, being introduced to how you could use DNA to answer evolutionary questions rather than using fossils and morphology in the skeleton, and I've been doing that ever since although I have a great interest in fossils and the skeleton, and I know my anatomy relatively well. So let me ask you a question before we get into the more sensationalistic aspects of this, which I'm sure a lot of the audience wants to get into. How uh, would you go about explaining to people who are skeptical what the basis is for evolution in terms of the human form in a very sort of generalistic way, not necessarily for professionals, but for the public, because there's a lot of question about that now. And uh, we've done a couple of questions, uh, a couple of programs on creationism and evolution, just sort of a very general explanation of how you would broach that topic for people who are not scientifically savvy, shall we say, and who really want to get get a, a scientific explanation of, of the evolutionary process, specifically on uh, with respect to humans? So I actually teach a, a course uh, like Evolution in Everyday Life, and I also teach a course on human evolution and health, as well as one on emerging diseases. And that's where I think the evolutionary boots meet the ground. You know, when you get up in the morning and your back is a little bit sore and you got to stretch, that's your evolutionary heritage. That's the problem of going from being a four-footed animal to standing upright. We're, we have our, 
our backs and pelvises and hips and joints haven't quite caught up with this new mode of walking on two feet. Um, if you go to the hospital and you take an antibiotic, everybody's now fearful of MRSA and antibiotic-resistant pathogens. That's evolution in action. There, there's a million places where evolution affects us in our everyday life in actually quite predictable, uh, in a quite a predictable manner. And so when I'm lecturing on it, I try to use as many examples of where it matters. I don't go into the minutia of the fossil record and this little bit of data and that. I try to make it like, here's why your back hurts or why you have fallen arches or why you need to take antibiotics for two straight weeks for them to work. So does that approach the uh, sort of, it's not a folksy approach, but it's certainly a very applied approach because people are obviously familiar with these effects and these phenomena. Do you find that that message gets through or that it provokes additional questions on the part of students? Um, well, again, you know, fortunately for me, my students are a very select group. And I, I found it interesting you said you were talking about creationism, which, you know, literally the majority of Americans actually believe in. And when I ask my students here in Greenwich Village, in New York City, at New York University, I say, what percentage of Americans do you think believe in creationism? They think it's like 5%, <laughs> when it's more like 75%. Um so that it's it's a really long road to hoe here to try to get this across and by trying to explain it in the simplest lay terms as possible to the largest audience possible I think that that's sort of my goal at least and I don't know how many um people you know truly change their mind or change their opinion, but I found generally, you know, except in the comment section on the internet, um, most people are at least polite and respectful um, when I discuss evolution in those terms. And you feel that you're making progress? I mean, look, you're dealing with obviously a select group of people whose direction and whose professional uh, venues are completely different, and they're actually dealing with the details of it. But, I mean, bridging the gap is very difficult. And we found Well, I, I, it, it really is difficult, but I think, um, I, I'm hoping I am making a difference. And I, I actually, many of my professional colleagues are like, you shouldn't be doing this kind of stuff. You're debasing science. You're demeaning science, our position, and all of this stuff. And I, I would argue quite the opposite. Um, one evening when we were debating this, like, should I do this particular show or not? Um, we sat down, we happened to be in a pub, and we, on the back of a napkin, we calculated the average professor will lecture to between 10 and 20,000 people in his or her life. And that's the average professor, students and colleagues at conferences and stuff. One TV show could have 900,000 viewers or maybe even millions if it's a good show. 
And, you know, again, if just a small percentage of those people seeing it explained well, and I hope I explain it well, and most people just haven't even been exposed to it. So many schools in this country just completely shy away from it that it's pretty hard to just deny, you know, here's a completely sensical thing. And if you've never been exposed and all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You know, if I get 5% a show, that's more than the number of students I'm ever teaching in my life. And, you know, we've had this argument before. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons that we do this program is to simply expand the message of science to a broader public. It's very hard to do, and it takes a certain amount of probity, as well as an ability to communicate on a certain level, uh, specifically concepts and ideas that are, are not that simple. And I think that your ability to communicate that is probably the most important aspect that you can possibly develop because professors are notorious about basically speaking to themselves and amongst themselves Mm -hmm. and within their specific area of of research. And like you say, there is an innate resistance to popularization. And uh, you're one of the people who obviously says we have to get over that because our message really has to apply to the broader population. So in that connection, why don't you give us a little bit of background on how you got involved with popularization and did you start by investigating the, for lack of a better word, pseudoscientific phenomena that we know as Bigfoot or did you segue into it by your initial urge to popularize the message of evolution? Uh, I basically accidentally segued into it. <laughs> um, I was uh, young and dumb enough in about 90, 1995 or 6, um, MTV cold called our department and said, do you have a biological anthropologist who would be willing to talk about this? <laughs> and I said, well, I'll talk to you. And it turned out to be for their series, Sex in the 90s. And they just wanted a biological anthropologist that the topic was what he wants. And so they had popular people like literally Hugh Hefner, Snoop Dogg, John Stewart, and others. But they wanted an egghead scientist to talk about the ed- evolutionary imperative of males, you know, spreading as many genes as possible into as many people with as little effort. And so I did that. Um, and I, I looked like a deer in the headlights, believe me. Oh, I but that yeah. got me into the Rolodex. And I started getting other calls from other shows. And one of the, the, one, the, the very next show was from National Geographic asking me if I could analyze the DNA from two individuals that were claimed, one was claimed to be a relic Neanderthal, and the other was claimed to be her Neanderthal human hybrid son. And this is a a famous pseudoscience story coming out of the Caucasus Mountains of uh, Russia, and I agreed to do it, 
and that then sort of sealed my fate. <laughs> they actually, the producers of the show, renamed it Russian Bigfoot, even though we never talked about Bigfoot in the show. They just thought that would be a bigger seller. And But because we could do this kind of analyses and I was willing to do them on TV, that led to now something like 26 other shows since then. And are you finding that there's still some resistance to this, or do your colleagues say, you know, this is a very valuable mission, uh, reaching out to a larger population and trying to explain, basically what you're looking for is an avenue to to get your foot in the door to explain these things to people, and obviously you're going to refine your ability to explain it the more experience you have. Is there, was there a fair amount of resistance at the outset? So at the outset, there was a lot of resistance. There is less and less, I think, now. Um, but there's still a, a residual amount of it, I think. Um, and I find this in particular when I have shows or producers who are saying, we would like an expert on this particular topic. Do you think, you know, and so they're like, we're going to do eight episodes of this show, and we need three different experts who are on this. And I'll give them the name, but I'm sa- I, I will tell them, like, not everybody's a Kardashian. Not everybody wants to be on TV. <laughs> and so they just keep going to somebody, and they say, no, I don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. Um, right. You know, and even if I give them an introduction, I was like, oh, this producer's going to call you. Um, you know, at least talk to him, please. Um, so it's still, there's very few of my colleagues who are willing to do this. And uh, we can talk about it later, but it, it's really difficult because it's very easy to be twisted and messed with by a producer or a TV show, as you know, the Discovery Channel has done to so many people with mermaids sure. and Megalodon and other things like that. It's the out-of-context problem. Right. And we're going to come back and continue our discussion with uh, Dr. Todd Disatel of New York University right after these words. Please stay tuned. Don't go away. We'll be right back. A wave of change is happening in our world now. A new feminine way of leadership is emerging. Yet this is not about women taking over. This rise of the feminine is helping men too. Join host Gina Lazenby, award-winning businesswoman, best-selling author, and speaker on feminine wisdom as she reports on the rise of the feminine with inspiring stories of women who are coming into their own and finding their unique purpose. Tune in and join this conversation in the rise of the feminine each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein with Indiana Jones Myth Reality 21st Century Archaeology. Our topic for the day is human evolution, the science behind it, and the sensationalist component of it, which is a topic that our present guest, Dr. Todd Disatel, is very familiar with. And uh, when we went to break, Dr. Disatel told us how he began to develop connections with a more popular series of venues, uh, specifically being called by a number of broadcast uh, outlets to discuss questions of human sexuality, uh, broader questions of evolution, and looking at sort of catchy topics that essentially form the intersection between archaeology, physical anthropology, and a popular myth. So, Todd, why don't you get get back into that and talk to us about the Bigfoot operation and how you got into that and what you eventually gained or, or transmitted from that experience. So my research ever since I left Harvard in 1992, I started here at NYU as a professor in 1992. I opened a molecular genetics lab in the anthropology department and we were studying basically any kind of question you could answer with DNA on primates, which to me, humans are just a bizarre special primate, you know, basically a naked two-footed primate. Um, and over the course of the years, my lab has been deeply involved in the identification of two new subspecies of apes, one of chimpanzee and one of gorillas as well as several new, you know, at least to Western science, unknown species of monkeys. And basically is what we do is we get DNA from whatever source we can, and we actually are great, great specialists on getting DNA out of hair and feces or scat. And that's how we've actually identified several of those new species and subspecies. And we extract the DNA from them, we sequence that DNA, and we run it against the large international database kept by the National Institutes of Health. And if it matches something, I can say, well, this is from a mountain goat, or this is from a coyote. 
And if it doesn't match, we have to carry out an evolutionary analysis. We actually infer or we look at where does this particular DNA sequence fall amongst all other known living species, on what branch of the evolutionary tree does it fall, and if it falls on a major branch, is it a big enough twig to be called a new species or subspecies? And so, again, we've done this for real research and many publications and grants, as you said. Um, Later, we can continue to do this kind of research. But if you think about it, identifying a cryptozoological creature, um, you know, somebody brings me in a hair sample or a blood stain or uh, a pile of scat, I can do exactly the same thing we do day in and day out in my lab. And they say, I found hair from Bigfoot stuck on this fence line in Oregon. And I'll say, well, except it's from a, you know, black-tailed deer or a coyote (laughs) or a mountain lion. And so So, how do they respond? How do they respond? um, They generally are disappointed, um, rarely hostile, um, just disappointed. And... Most of the time, they're actually just very grateful that I've actually applied the lens of science to their quest. Um, Now, that being said, I have also appeared on the pilot of Ancient Aliens and have several more episodes coming up. And if you are skeptical or you give disproof of aliens, they become hostile. (laughs) So the aliens crowd is very different from the Bigfoot or the Chupacabra crowd. Again, they're disappointed that their evidence didn't hold up. The aliens people will just outright attack you for, you know, not being a good scientist or being hostile to them. Um, So I've done hundreds and hundreds of Bigfoot, Yeti, Yowie, Sasquatch, Almus, Oring Pendek, you name it. There are these creatures, everybody reports them from basically everywhere but Antarctica. (laughs) I'm sure that's coming down the pike. That's coming down the pike, yeah. So... So I don't want to cut you off, but this is really an interesting sociological issue. Why do the alien people get hostile while the Sasquatch Bigfoot crowd, as you put it, those people are simply disappointed. They accept the DNA evidence. I mean, I think it's fair to say, and you argue with me if you can or or bring up a point to counter to this, that by and large, given the widespread use of DNA in criminal investigations, Anybody but anybody who's reasonably educated will say, well, DNA basically makes an open and shut case for many situations. So what happens with the alien crowd, and why do you say if they're not uniformly hostile, what's their stand? How do they, how do they deal with this? Well, their evidence is they're not bringing hair and feces and blood and stuff to the table, first of all. Mm-hmm. So basically, they don't have physical evidence um, it, to date. Um, and But I, I, I literally don't know. I, I have two facetious answers. 
Okay. Um, one is that, you know, the tin foil is a little too tight on their hats. <laughs> and the other is they're still annoyed about that anal probing. <laughs> okay, but the question is, why are they turning to you? I mean, they know that you're you're an expert on these matters, but isn't it a prerequisite that uh, an item, an uh, artifact, a piece of residual material cultural record, something like that will be trans- given to you, and you look at it, they're just calling you out of the blue because they know that you're an expert on, quote, these types of things? Well, I think it's literally because I was on the pilot of Ancient Aliens, the, I see, you know, the I big see show. Um, right. And there, I didn't actually analyze any data. I just expressed some skepticism. I basically applied the scientific method. They asked me, like, why are there pyramids on so many continents? Of course, yeah. And, you know, I went to Archeo 101. You know, if sure. you're going to build something big <laughs> a long time ago, that's about the only thing. You, you can build a pyramid or a cone. Um, you know, why does everybody navigate by the stars? What's the one constant on Earth? Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I was giving just, here's the alternative explanation, you know, the H0 hypothesis. You don't have to jump to aliens. You can explain these phenomena and trying to explain the scientific method um, and the concept of skepticism. You know, you don't sure. jump to the wild conclusion when there's a more reasonable answer. So why did the Bigfoot phenomenon catch on? And how did you get into that? And where does it stand right now? I mean, obviously, you've said that by and large, these people are disappointed. Is there now a collective realization that such a phenomenon really is just the stuff of myth? Or uh, are people still not accepting of that? I think it's been doubled and tripled down on it. Just look at the number of actual TV shows on air right now about this. And um, so I, I did I did the show that was not about Bigfoot. It was supposedly about Neanderthals and modern humans, but they named it Russian Bigfoot. Um, and then that led to several episodes of Monster Quest on the History Channel, where I was given samples that, you know, I was like, this is human, this is cow, this is horse, this is mountain goat, this is a coyote, etc. Um, but that made me one of the very few, and I hope I'm using this term properly, credible scientists, I hope <laughs> I still have my credibility, right. Um who was willing to do this, but I'm not open. I'm not asking people to send me samples. I'm not looking for Bigfoot. I'm applying the lens of science when I have a venue to discuss it. So I get, I get messages and emails and phone calls out of the blue daily. In fact, I got a a Facebook message about an hour ago. Can I send you these samples? We found hair where somebody said they saw a Bigfoot. I'm like, no, thanks. <laughs> and I give them the name of a company that for $350 a sample, we'll test it for them. That usually quiets them down. Um, so I don't just take samples from people. I'm not looking for Bigfoot. I am testing claims of it when 
I then get to explain how I test it, what I'm testing, how this works. So basically, every one I've done has been with a TV network behind it where I then get my science education venue. I am not a Bigfoot hunter at all. (laughs) There are people who call themselves that. They call themselves Bigfoot researchers. Um, I I try to be as polite as possible to them. But, you know, to date, there is not one bit nor bite of data, even suggest credible data, suggesting the existence of this thing. Fuzzy photographs and footprints are literally meaningless to a biologist. So, I mean, it would seem that even most of the lay public would be sort of responsive if you're going on some kind of a broadcast venue or some kind of a communication outlet and you say, look, this is the DNA. It has essentially a specific signature. That signature can be matched up with living things or living entities. And I'm assuming that in some way, shape, or form, that's what you're doing here, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, so we, we sequence it, we run it against the database. To date, I have, except for the few, the few real species of non-human primates that we have helped identify in our lab, you know, they have fallen on a branch of the tree, for instance, on the branch of the chimpanzees, but different enough from all known chimpanzees to be a new subspecies. But we have never found, you know, a mystery ape or a mystery human that falls outside the range of something already known. And that's an interesting question. And I think what you're doing enables people to at least start to grasp these concepts, which uh, are sophisticated, obviously, because you can look at certain, certainly skeletal morphology and those components of differentiation and say, okay, we have found, uh, we have found variability within a genus or within a species or, 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 or that kind of order of magnitude. Do you find that people can grasp that? I don't think it would be that difficult to grasp. I, I think they have. Um, and that was so my, my biggest show to date was the $10 million Bigfoot bounty on Spike Television. Tell us about I was that. initially approached by their lawyers and the lawyers for Lords of, Lloyds of London to come up with what would be definitive proof of Bigfoot. And it came down to basically DNA evidence that fell outside the range of any known primate, but they also needed other physical evidence, a skeleton, a partial skeleton, or like absolute unequivocal video or photographs, no fuzzy things, um, to basically win this bond. The, the network actually paid Lloyds of London to promise $10 million if somebody could actually bring, bring in scientific proof of it. 
And so we came up with these criteria, DNA evidence. It, you know, it had to be primate but fall outside the range of any known primate. So it couldn't mm-hmm. just be a subspecies of something or that. It couldn't be an escaped circus chimp running around the woods of Washington State because um, that would be the mem- a member of the genus Pan, a chimpanzee. But um, one of the interesting questions, my lab, from the very get-go, we would sit around at lunchtime and sort of, not even jokingly, but seriously talk about, what would Bigfoot be? And there are multiple theories. It's a relic hominin, like uh, another species of Neanderthal or Denisovan. One of the lead theories is it's, it's a surviving member of the Gigantopithecus lineage, uh, a species that the last fossils we have go back just two to 300,000 years ago in Asia. And some piece, people tie that to the Yeti and to Bigfoot. Um, but, you know, it had to fall in the primate tree in a sort of a sensical place. It wasn't going to be a little tiny jumping tarsier or something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also needed other evidence just so we knew that it wasn't just, again, an escaped chimp or orangutan running around the forest. <clears throat> and, again, we science is equipped to answer those questions, to place an unknown thing into its position in the overall tree of life. Um, And so that's how I got involved in it. But as I alluded to earlier, they initially wanted to have like eight episodes. They wanted to have an expert on different topics for each episode. And nobody wanted to do that. (laughs) And so at the end, you know, they're like, oh, can you just co-host this and be the science expert for all eight episodes? And I agreed to. I had already agreed to design a portable DNA laboratory and run it and oversee it. And right towards the end, they said, well, we want you to be our science expert on it as well, along with uh, another colleague of mine, Natalia Reagan, who is a field primatologist. So I sort of handled the biological evidence and the DNA evidence, and she went out with the teams talking about how they're going to find their evidence and gather it and work together and do those kinds of things. And then, of course, we added in Dean Kane, Superman, because everybody knew who he was. <laughs> Very good. And uh, we will t- go to another break and be back with our concluding segment with Dr. Todd Disatel of uh, New York University on matters related to evolution, DNA, and uh, basically the uh, emergence of hominids and their dispersals from a scientific and popular perspective. Don't go away, we'll be right back. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune into the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing, Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Where are you getting your advice on buying, selling, or maintaining your most important asset, your home? Is it from a reality show on cable TV, a comparison website, or are you just flying by the seat of your pants and gut instinct? Stop now before you make another move. Tune into Real Real Estate Today with host and realtor Deb Tomorrow. You can't afford to play guesswork when it comes to your new or existing home. Listen every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. My guest on today's program is Dr. Todd Disatel, who is an evolutionary biologist at New York University, and we've been discussing various aspects of scientific method, human evolution, uh, human dispersals, uh, the descent and the emergence of the human form and how it's related to uh, the entire process of evolution and, and uh, specialization. And uh, Todd has been extremely involved in uh, trying to educate uh, the lay audience into questions re- involving DNA, what's its scope, what's its range, and what's its use. And in the course of so doing, he has also entertained some myths from popular culture, for, uh, specifically the entire question of Bigfoot. And I think uh, one of your uh, major areas of expertise, perhaps even the largest one, is genetics and DNA. Why don't you tell us a little bit, Todd, about what the emergence of DNA research is about and how its applications have expanded so greatly over the past 20 years? So most people have seen some kind of police drama where, you know, they get a DNA sample and match it to a particular suspect. Well, for evolutionary biologists, sometimes we can match a DNA sample to a particular known species but other times it sort of is different enough it's not a perfect match and so then the question is what is it and we can use evolutionary biology to try to answer that and so we know the range of variation of most species uh, most genera most families etc so you know if i find if somebody gives me a scat sample or let's say a hair sample from the woods mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and I sequence it, and it comes up, it's some kind of cervid, meaning a deer or an elk or something closely related to them. So it's either just literally one that's already known, a black-tailed or white-tailed deer or elk or moose or something like that, or it maybe it's something new. It's a species that we didn't know was living in that particular region at the time. But if we compare the DNA sequences of all the known ones and our new, perhaps unknown one, we'll see that it's similar, but not quite the same. And so we can add, if you will, a branch to the evolutionary tree, but in that group, within the cervids. It's not some new special thing. It's some new kind of cervid, and then we can try to judge, is it a new species of cervid, or is it just a variety or a subspecies of one that's already known? Um, And that, writ large, is how we do these kinds of analyses. So we can compare how similar this sequence is. So, for instance, Joe, you and I are almost certainly about 99.9% identical across our entire genome. You and I and a chimp are about 99% identical across our genome. But what happens if I find something that's 99.5% different? Then it's not human nor chimp. It's something between us. And in the evolutionary tree, we know that there are many fossil species of humans and also fossil chimps. And so we might have to start speculating on which branch. Does it fall on the chimp branch or does it fall on the human branch? If it falls on the human branch, is it a Neanderthal whose genome we know or a Denisovan whose genome we know? These are hominins found in Eurasia that are related to us but have been extinct for 30 or 40,000 years. Yet, 30 or 40,000 years ago, their ancestors hybridized with our ancestor. So you and I have a couple percentage of Neanderthal in us, which is fascinating. And this is a brand new discovery. Only in the last five or six years did we realize that. And that's because DNA technology has gotten so strong and robust that we can look at a 40,000-year-old or a 100,000-year-old. Currently, I believe the record is a 780,000-year-old fossil and get DNA out of it. Just like getting DNA out of a shallow grave of somebody who was murdered two years ago or 10 years ago, we are now looking at 40 and 100,000-year-old specimens and getting DNA out of them and identifying where on the evolutionary tree they fall. It's fascinating stuff because, as you probably, as I'm sure you know, that uh, the first hint that we had that Neanderthals and Sapiens Sapiens really were so similar was finding their archaeological deposits in the same place. Right. 
and, and uh, being confused by their stone tools. And being very confused by their stone tools, which really sort of previewed, but in a very, at least a tempting way, to uh, hypotheses that they live together, that they function together, that there might have been some competition, there might have been some mating together, and then all of a sudden, the robustness of the DNA testing scale comes in and says, you know what, you guys were right. Yeah. So, no, I mean, here's my so question to you. I, I'm a scientist, and I wrote three papers literally saying humans and Neanderthals did not interbreed with each other right. based on the genetic evidence we had at the time. Exactly. My two most recent papers say I was wrong. Right. New evidence shows that they did, though not a lot, but they did. And to me, that's the beauty of science. Being able to say, I was wrong, making me a better scientist. And I was wrong because we have new data. But here's where you get into the very testy area, Todd, because when you have an argument, and this is just something I want to bring up to the broader public, when you have an argument with a creationist, uh, they will bring up those cases where the progress of science is almost ignored and you make right. a certain claim and it's disproved. And the bottom line here is the deeper you dig, the more you'll find out and the more the greater the questions are. Whereas the default option for the creationist is it says so in the book. That's yeah. it. That's all you Total need. knowledge is easy. <laughs> That's right. So my question to you, as someone who has tried to bridge this gap, because we know how difficult it is, that the numbers that you say uh, that break out people who really have some sort of a scientific approach and those who simply don't is so staggering. How do we bridge that gap? How do we do it? I, I, again, I, I think we need to do it as easily explainable as possible to the broadest possible audience. There's always going to be true believers. You will never break through there. Right. But as I said, a huge percentage of the population, because this is controversial, schools will shy away from it. Public schools won't talk about evolution. And so you get people, they've heard about it, Sunday or Saturday night or Friday night or Wednesday Bible study, they've heard about creationism, but they've never been properly exposed to evolution. And, you know, if that's what you were told growing up, you're going to believe it until proven otherwise. And my goal is just to have a shot at being that otherwise. Right. And then you, have, you do have a fair number of people who occupy a middle ground. You have scientists, and, and we did a program about this two or three weeks ago. You have scientists who are simply people of faith, so right. that there is no necessary, uh, I would call, about, call it even evolutionary, but let's call it a developmental line that goes from faith to the belief in evolution. There's just sort of a truncation here. And it could be a right. cultural tradition. It could be some kind of a, a, a psychological crutch, if you want to say it. And people who are un fully understand that 
looking at evolution is almost an inevitable conclusion if you look at the world around you and that what we're really doing is filling in gaps. And yet right. there are people who occupy that little uh, part of the world, if you will. It's, unfortunately, it's a small part. Those yes. people I don't worry about because <laughs> they actually buy data and science and facts. And I believe it was Stephen Jay Gould who referred to the, and I might get this wrong, but I believe it was him who said these are non-overlapping magisteria, you know, that you can have your religious belief system in one part of your brain and your fact and science-based system in the other, and they can coexist. Personally, myself, I can't do that. But I'm never out there to trash people's religion, to try to convert people from their religion. If they have their, you know, beliefs and it gets them through whatever, I have no trouble with that whatsoever until they want to impose that system on me and my children and society. Then I begin to have a problem with it. Of course you do. So uh, we're getting close to the end of the program, Todd. Give me some uh, indications or previews on where DNA research is going. Well, what are, so what are the new frontiers? My newest project, I actually have two high school students working with me for five weeks this summer. We are working on something called environmental DNA. And so we went to Washington Square Park just down the street here and just got a couple soil samples. This weekend where I live up in Yonkers, which I see is where you are. That's where I am. Um, I collected some soil samples and some water samples. And we have also sort of snuck into some restaurants and swabbed their uh, laminated menus and, or, you know, their laminated menus. And we are going to sequence every fragment of DNA found in those samples. And we're going to find tens of thousands of different species of bacteria. And in the parks and in the water, every fish, every frog, every turtle, every bird, basically we shed, organisms shed DNA constantly. Our techniques have gotten so sensitive, you can identify every fish in a pond from a cup full of pond water. Because if you think of it as they excrete things, as water pours through their gills, as they die and decompose, all of their DNA is being released into the environment. And our DNA sequencing techniques are so sensitive, one fragment of a couple hundred bases of DNA allows us to identify everything present there. And so this is going to be, this is opening up new ways to survey rather than casting nets into a pond and trying to catch every fish and frog and turtle there to see what's living there. We can just collect a cup of water and sequence the minute tiny pieces of DNA that they've left behind. And to me, you've probably heard of the microbiome, the 100 trillion bacteria living inside you, or living on the screen of the ATM machine, or on the seat in the subway. 
I'm now developing a course so I can train my students into being able to go to a new environment rather than spending three years like they used to have to in the past trying to identify everything there to identify everything there in a matter of days in the laboratory. And also to screen. We catch a 1,000 mosquitoes a day in traps. How many have Zika or chikungunya or dengue? Right. Should we be worried or not? Right. We can now do this en masse. We can do this in giant quantities, extraordinarily cheaply, to screen the environment for both what is out there as well as potential threats. That, to me, is like the most exciting thing yet in my career. And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap up this program. My guest today was Dr. Todd Disitel of New York University, and this is another in our series of uh, transmitting concepts of evolution to the broader public. Thank you, Todd, so much for being part of the program, and uh, we look forward to getting some updates on your research going forward. Thanks a lot. It was a great pleasure. And we are signing off for this episode, and we will be back at the same time next week with another presentation of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Good evening, and thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.